if you get them to walk you through the whole journey from first thought or that trigger moment where they were like, I need to make a change and walk through to them actually having found the solution that they've paid for and are using. There's so much juicy information in that journey that from a marketer's perspective, it's like hot damn, like this is like gold. And from a product designer's perspective, it's like, okay, those were the trade-offs that mattered. When you know what to do because you have the right insight, you spend less time floundering, right? You can really focus on the right things. Welcome to Top of Mind a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. This episode, I'm going to do something that's a little different because soon you'll see that this episode is going to be unique in its own right. So first, I'll open with a quote, and it goes like this. It sucks when you've got a new product idea, and your first customer research proves that your assumptions were wrong, and no one really wants your product. But it sucks way more when you don't do any research and spend months or years building the wrong thing. That quote is from my next guest, and when she tweeted it, it got over 3,000 retweets. So obviously, it hit a chord with the marketing and product people over on Twitter. She's a four-time founder, a customer-obsessed marketer, and I'm very excited to announce is my new employer. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm really excited too. <laughs> joining me live today, I've got Caitlin Bourgoyne. Awesome, Stuart. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I, I think this is probably a pretty unique way of getting to kind of get to know each other and kind of exploring what customer camp and the work we're going to be doing is all about in kind of a, an early phase. Like I'm still kind of unsure about what exactly it is we do. So it's cool that we get to <laughs> chat about it and share it with the people. That's awesome. Well, things are evolving and with any kind of new business evolving fairly quickly. So I think that, you know, you being unsure kind of is a testament to where we've got a lot of things happening in the back end that are really exciting, but in the front, we're kind of just like trying to be that duck with our feet going underwater. So, (laughs) well, I'm excited to jump on board. So kind of get things started in your bio, you describe yourself as customer obsessed. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And maybe there's a story behind that, how you discovered that that was one of your superpowers. Absolutely. So when I say that I'm customer obsessed, I mean that I really look at the customer and put that at the center of the work that we do. And so that means that the customer informs what products we're creating, the customer informs our messaging, the customer informs obviously the marketing, like the customer informs the things that we don't do. And I didn't always work that way. I think as a marketer, all marketers would like to think that they spend a lot of time thinking about the customer. But, you know, in the years that I used to run a branding agency and in, you know, my tech company, I definitely didn't, I listened to the customer, but I also did a lot of the talking. And so over, um, over the years and having learned from different experiences, now I'm just so adamant at understanding customer needs, making sure that we are making decisions, not just because they sound good or because somebody had a great idea in the boardroom, but because they're really what our customer needs. And not enough people are spending time having those conversations with customers. They're kind of like 
picking up little anecdotes here or there or making some assumptions based on some perceptions of who they think those customers are. And that leads them astray. And so really for us, it's like put the customer at the center, make sure that we're making the right decisions for them and let them guide the growth and direction of the company. So does like having a customer, just kind of the idea of customer research, does that mean that you need to have customers or does this process apply to both startups and existing businesses? Oh, it totally. It applies to both. Of course, if you have an existing business, you're going to get the most actionable and relevant insights by talking to your own customers, right? Like you're going to get a lot more insight talking to people who are already buying from you than you're going to get just, you know, talking to general people who fit a persona who might be your customer. That being said, if you are in the idea stage or you're in the early stage or you're thinking about maybe bringing something new to market, then you can absolutely still have conversations with customers. They're not going to be your customers, but you can talk to people who are actually buying solutions to solve the problem that you want to solve. And so one of the things that I say is like, if you want to figure out how to get people to buy, talk to actual buyers, like you're going to get so much more insight from those conversations than you will from, you know, focus groups of people who might like said product or random people who fit a persona. I think that's always a a danger. And me kind of having started a couple of projects on the side is you kind of start looking to your immediate network for input to Mm -hmm. whether they like what you're doing. But then you kind of take a step back and you realize that (laughs) these people don't even fit the persona of the people I hope to be getting involved in listening or downloading or whatever the, the action is. And so I find it hard to kind of get your head out of it and start looking at your actual, the real customers and not just who you have access to. Sometimes your network can have some really interesting insights, again, if they're buyers, right? And mm. so when my husband and I were starting his new business, which is fun and exciting, and you'll get to lots learn lots about that because it's kind of like a sandbox or some of the stuff we do at Customer Camp. But when we were starting that, we identified who three types of customers might be. And so, and then we went out to our, it's a B2C product. It's a product that any, lots of people could and might consume. And so we went out to our network and said like, you know, have you bought said and said product or have you bought said and said product? And we did reach out to people that we knew and had early conversations with them, but they were people that were already buying. And so I think the mistake that people make when they go to their network for advice and feedback is that they talk to people who may not be who the end buyer will be and people who are probably going to sugarcoat things and give them, you know, say what they want to hear, people who already believe in them, who aren't going to be very critical. (laughs) And you can make a lot of mistakes that way. And the other thing that the problem with going in that direction, which is something that I did, you know, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because when I started my tech company, Vendive, we did 300 customer discovery interviews. We were told you have to go out and talk to the customers, talk to the customers, talk to the customers. I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And we went out and we did that diligently. And I didn't realize that I was biasing every single one of those conversations and not using them in the right way to actually get meaningful insights that we could make decisions from. And so it's not just about talking to customers, although so few companies are even doing that, that if more did that, I know that they would be better off, even if they did them wrong, they'd still be better off. But it's about talking to customers and having those conversations in the right way and focusing on what customers are actually doing, like understanding their buying stories, understanding their journey and their thoughts. Because if you ask people for opinions, or if you ask that for feedback on your ideas, sometimes you can get some very 
interesting and persuasive answers that don't actually reflect how people make actual buying decisions. So, you know, there's that risk of talking to the wrong people or asking them the wrong questions and still not getting where you want to go, which is, you know, a viable solution that people love and want to pay for. So that company uh, that you're ideating with and, and have now brought to market is a great example of like the difference between actually finding buyers and then just kind of going to your network. Can you can you give us an example of of like a group of people that you hoped would be customers and then when you actually went to go talk to them you realized that they were not at all buyers and how how do you identify that Yeah, absolutely. So I can give a little bit of the backstory here. So my husband is a chef by trade and he um, had been working for several years in the oil and gas sector. Now he had previously owned restaurants, had a bad breakup with a business partner, got into oil and gas, had wanted to get back into restaurants for a while. And when the pandemic happened, he lost his job. So it was the perfect time to do something new. And so knowing that there was a quarantine happening and all the restaurants were closed, it didn't seem like the right time to open a restaurant, but he wanted to do something in food. So we started brainstorming and this is around April of 2020 and we're talking about different things that he could be doing. And we came up with this idea for a barbecue box and it would be somewhat like, you know, HelloFresh or Chef's Plate, this type of idea. But rather than it being any type of meal, we would focus specifically on barbecue. And lots of reasons why we thought this was fun. And so I was like, okay, who do we think are going to be the buyers for this? And Jason and I kind of had different expectations of who those buyers might be. He, In his mind, he was picturing this buyer that is like your typical farmer's market goer who shows, you know, shops there religiously every week, who cares about grass-fed, hormone-free food. Like that was like the buyer he had in his mind. And then there was that the other kind of persona, which was like the hardcore barbecue geek, like the person who like has the fancy grill and buys the best cuts and like, you know, spends eight hours on the weekend smoking things like there was that person. And then there was the other persona, which was like, well, who's already buying barbecue, like boxes of food that they're getting delivered? Let's talk to some of those people and understand them. And so we ended up having conversations with the farmer's market goers. We ended up having conversations with the people who are already buying food boxes and having them delivered to their home and conversations with those hardcore barbecue geeks, people who are spending money on the best cuts of meat and the best seasonings and the best grills. And from that, what was interesting is it became apparent to us that even the people who were the farmer's market goers, they weren't as like the ones that we were having conversations with, like they cared about buying local and they wanted to buy local. It was something that they valued, but they also struggled a lot with it. You know, they didn't get to the market as much as they wanted to. They did end up buying a lot of like meat and produce from Costco and the superstore. And they would talk about that sheepishly. Jason had thought that was the message. He thought that was the hook, right? Like local grass-fed AAA. Like he was thinking that the meat quality and the local component of it was the most important element. And I was like, I don't know. I think that the convenience might be the most important element. And so, you know, in these conversations, when we were talking to the box buyers, another persona that we had identified, we ended up figuring out kind of like zeroing in even more on kind of like who those people were. And I like to call them the like the food curious suburban parents, because (laughs) these are people who love food. They would call themselves foodies. That's a word that they would use to describe themselves all the time. 
That said, they often lived in, whether it was either a rural community or a suburb where getting to, you know, a downtown restaurant was not going to be an every weekend thing. It was not the lifestyle that they could have. They had young kids. They, you know, it would require getting a day or getting a babysitter and, and getting, you know, a cab to and from. And so they were buying they were buying boxes like to have more of that convenience and also just to have something different to break up the monotony. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as we talked more and more, it's interesting. We're we're four months in now. And the thing that we've discovered through our most recent series of customer discovery interviews is we are not a food box at all. Like, and we learned that like, it's been never been clear because we just wrapped up like six we are very much a food experience and like if we try like we don't want to compete against tuesday's dinner anymore like we were creating boxes that were designed for multiple meals thinking that's kind of the space where we needed to be and like from a unit economics perspective that made sense but people were buying those and inviting over two or four friends and having a feast with them or they were splitting them with their friends or they were celebrating so-and-so's birthday and so it was like oh like what we we're positioning ourselves as initially is not actually the space where we are designed, like where we can actually do the most impact. And so it's all of that is a long answer to say, like what, what you go in with, you're going to formulate a lot of assumptions. You're going to have great conversations. You're going to learn how people buy. And then you have to keep doing this. That's the obsession part. It's not that one time thing or it's like nailed it, got it done. It's right. a thing that you consistently do so you can improve and optimize your business over time. Yeah, you said you started those conversations before even putting any money into that first run of the product. And then mm-hmm. since then, you've been able to kind of cash flow and do another one and do another one, but you, you're still learning. It's not necessarily changing the product in big strokes, but it's more like getting those details down. Like, what should you put on the website? How do you talk about it in your social media? What volume of meat should I include in it? Like, those are all becoming more clear the, the, the more conversations it sounds like you're having. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was one of the things that we were doing because of the capacity that we had and the size of our team, we were doing monthly boxes where we would release a new a new box every month or several new boxes every month together. And there would be a limited delivery time window and they'd go out. And like, while that at the time we learned a lot, I wouldn't take doing that back. What was so fascinating was that as we started learning more and more about the, our customers, like they were actually planning their events around us and even though we were very much an event experience for them so that they wanted to share with families and friends, like they were having to wait and plan their events around us. <laughs> like <Yeah>. one couple <laughs> put off their anniversary weekend away by a week so that they could get <laughs> our box and take it to the cottage. And so we, you know, really became clear that while it was logistically really challenging for us to do these monthly launches, because it was like new menu development every month, like new sales pages, new marketing strategy, like every month it was like launching, launching, launching mm. a lot for a small team to do. I wouldn't take it back because we learned so much. But now the exciting things, it's like, oh man, like this next iteration is going to be evergreen boxes. So we're going to have four boxes based around events because we know that that's what people are using it for. We're going to have a date night box. We're going to have a game day box. We're going to have a party box. We're going to have a bubble box, which is like for your bubble family. Because <laughs> we know that things are still going to stay weird for the next little while. Yeah. And so we're going to design those based around those events. And people, we, we love it because it's like, okay, when do people do events? On the weekend, right? So our delivery days are Thursday and Friday. And we can start planning and helping people to plan their events as opposed to them having to fit into our schedule, which I think is going to be so much better for our customers. 
Oh, that's awesome. So that's very cool that you get to experiment using customer camps process and like interview flow and all those things on a, on a sandbox business, as you mm-hmm. said, to, to see it in real life and, and, learn, and learn in real time. It's so much fun. I mean, I certainly do all of this for, for my own business too. Like I do interviews with customers for customer camp all the time. Customer camp is a bit of a different animal in that we do a lot of training, but we do training primarily through corporate partners. So we get hired by business support organizations, mostly in Atlantic Canada, and we deliver training to their members and to their like community. So like tech accelerators might hire us to do training. You know, business support organizations for specific industries like the digital sector will hire us to do training. And so I have conversations with those people all the time too. And I have conversations with people that are coming through the training, but there's that kind of step removed of being able to, I feel like with Charboys, it's just so much fun to (laughs) apply the insights from the research to the product, to the marketing. It's just, it's, you can hear these things. You hear the words that they say, you hear them describe, like we've heard 10 people say that it feels like opening a, like it feels like Christmas when the box arrives. And I'm like, oh my God. And we're barely, we're not doing nearly as much as I would like to do to make that unboxing experience awesome. So like, wait till we like up that level of awesome. They're going to, we can blow their minds, right? Yeah. And I mean, as we're recording this, it's end of September. So Christmas is right around the corner. Maybe a turkey box. That is right. Well, we are thinking about that. We're thinking about like, if we want to keep doing specialty boxes. Maybe we do those six times a year and give us real time to kind of build up lots of demand, get people pumped on them. And from a like operations perspective, more manageable. We're a team of of my like I'm working full time in my business and doing this on the side. My husband's full time in in Char Boys and we have one employee we just hired. So <laughs> it's it's a lot for a small team, but we're so thrilled that you're going to be coming soon and helping more on the customer camp side and helping us to come up with more ideas for Char Boys. It's going to be it's we've done a lot with a small team, but when you know what to do because you have the right insight, you spend less time floundering, right? You can really focus on the right things. So that knowing what to do part, that comes from the customer research. 100%. What are some of the most common barriers that you see that keeps either marketing or product teams from actually just getting those customer research conversations done? There's a bunch. I mean, one of the big things is it's not on anybody's to-do list, typically, um, unless you work in a more, in an organization that from the top, this is coming down as an incredible, like it's incredibly important priority. For instance, Drift, the way that Drift works is like they are customer obsessed as an organization. From like day one, everybody on the team had to man their chat and do customer support at least once, I think a month, even, you know, the CEO, everybody, because it kept them close to the customer. So unless it's coming down from the top and you've actually built in processes to do this. It's usually not on anybody's to-do list. So it doesn't happen until there's a problem, right? And it's like, okay, well, we just launched this thing and it flopped. That's a huge trigger that gets people to reach out to me looking for us to do research for them. Oftentimes it's, we launched something, we spent a bunch of money on it. Nobody wanted it. Oh crap. We still need to launch something new. This time we should probably do some research. So I'd say that part of the barriers, it's not on anybody's to-do list. The other thing is that they do, there's a lot of kind of like moving pieces to get a conversation going, right? You need to identify who you want to talk to. You've got to reach out and book the call. You don't, you have to kind of decide what questions you're going to ask. After you have the interview, it's like, how do you actually decide what was important and what wasn't? And so if you're doing it for the first time with no structure, no framework, nothing, it's like, 
I have no idea where to even start, right? And I think that that for a lot of people is a barrier that stops them. Unless if I wouldn't have participated in a number of tech accelerators where this kind of customer discovery component was a part of it, I don't think I would have found my way to that way of working. Like I ran an agency for several years working with big clients. This was not the way agencies worked. Like I worked at some of the biggest agencies in the region. None of them are talking to customers. There was smart people sitting in a boardroom with a whiteboard and a beer on a Friday afternoon and planning $100,000 campaigns that never had any customer insight other than, well, they're kind of like my grandmother. My grandmother likes this. Like it was just, it's crazy reflecting back on it, but I didn't know any better and nobody was talking about it. It wasn't a common practice at the time. And I think it's still not a common practice in most companies. I hear it time and time again from like people on the show or even just kind of in the in the comments on LinkedIn or Twitter, people just saying like, did anyone consult any of their mm-hmm. customers on this? This is so off, mm-hmm. off brand or in bad taste. Like when something really flops, it takes a lot of notice. But I think the worst thing that could ever happen is like crickets, like no one mm-hmm. even cares. That's the thing that happens most of the time, right? Or you get like a little bit of like something and it's like, there's something here, I think, but like, there's not a really strong signal. So it's like, do we need to make a significant pivot? Do we need to mm. just stay the course? And depending on the style of company, depending on the you know perseverance of the founders, <laughs> depending on the, the pressure on the founders and the executive team, like all of those are factors in what happens when there's like a flop. And flops are so common. Like in one of my workshops, I give all these stats. I start off with what I call the bad news. <laughs> it's like, here's the bad news. Like nine out of 10 venture back companies will die. They will fail after raising $1.7 million <laughs> in, in, in venture capital and they'll fail nine out of 10. And the majority of them never go on to have those big exit moments, but it's nine out of 10 within the first 20 months. Mm -hmm. And small businesses, same thing, right? You hear the stats all the time. It's like within three years, most of the small businesses that have opened their doors have since shut them. And it's even a huge problem for enterprise companies bringing something new to market. Only about 6% of new products launched by enterprise companies actually fulfill the expectation of the people who are bringing them to market. And when you think about that, that's so staggering, right? Imagine the money and the resources going into these things. And yet all of the, there's so much data that shows when companies are spending more time talking to their customers, when they're making the customer part of their development cycle, they see these huge, huge improvements in their like success ratio, but it's still not happening. And there's lots of reasons why, but I think it's people overcomplicate it. They you know, they don't know how to do it and they don't even know that they should be doing it. I think the not even knowing that you should be doing it is a huge thing in in a lot of established companies. Yeah. Well, let's get into the nitty gritty. So if you only Mm -hmm. had 30 minutes with a customer, um, let's say, let's say we continue with the Charboys example, because I think Mm -hmm. that's really easy to wrap our heads around. So you've got a barbecue box and Mm -hmm. you had, you were trying to get a customer on the phone or in person. I don't know. You maybe explain what what format works the best um, for maybe remote situations. Mm -hmm. What would you do if you only were able to get them for 30 minutes? 
So I would, I would only want them for 30 minutes because that's probably the only thing they're going to say yes to. So I know that some some people will, you know, bigger companies will incentivize people and try to get more of their time. But like realistically, if you want to get somebody to say yes to having a conversation with you, just so you can learn stuff from them, you better not ask them for very much time. So I usually ask for 20 minutes and I book 45 in my calendar. And I'd say about the 30 minute mark is where we've, we've really gotten through the bulk of the conversation. And so... When it comes to getting them to say yes to that meeting, this is a question that a lot of people have. What I will, what I'll say is that it's not always the easiest to identify who you want to talk to, especially if you don't have your own customers. If you do have your own customers, it's not that hard. Like I was approached by um, Shopify; they were doing some internal research using an outside researcher, and she reached she reached out and she said, "I saw you use this new feature that we had. Like I'm doing some calls." wanting to understand why people are using it. Like, can I get like 20 minutes of your time? I'll compensate you with like $30 in Shopify credits or something. And I got this and I wanted to go into it because as a researcher, I want to see how they're doing research. Right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is one of the top companies, but I didn't get to it right away. And she said she had 20 spots and I didn't get to it right away. And by the time I looked in the afternoon, all the spots are booked. So depending on, you know, the size of your company, if you give a little incentive and you have customers, this is not that hard to get people to say yes to having a conversation with you. If you don't have customers and you're trying to, or you have a few customers and you're looking at maybe doing something new that you want to do some research on, then it's trickier. So what I would say is that if you are bringing anything to market, if you're thinking about building something new, you would have to find ways to find customers. So if you can't find people to have conversations with you, how do you think you're going to find customers? But in my workshop, I walk through a bunch of different, you know, you can check on your competition. You can see like people who've written reviews for them. You can reach out to those people. You can go to social media. People are probably posting about looking for new solutions to X, Y, and Z problem. You can reach out to those people. You can ask your network, you know, who's bought something like this recently, and then they'll put their hands up. So there's lots of ways to find these people to have the conversations. So let's say you've got somebody on the phone. What are you actually looking to learn from them? Well, what you're not wanting to do is pitch them on your idea. You're not wanting to say, you know, I'm thinking about doing this and we, you know, we think it's a re problem because of this. And what do you think? Like, and there's this, I would say misconception in the customer discovery world that like most of these meetings should be about problem analysis. So it should be like going to like somebody and being like, well, tell me about like email. Like I've heard that email is a big problem for you or like, you know, is email a problem for you? And they'll like spend the whole time exploring the problem. I don't like to do it that way because as Bob Molesta, he's a, he's a brilliant man, one of the architects of the jobs to be done framework, which is something I'm a big nerd on and ascribe to. But like one of the things he said in an interview I recently did with him was he was like, bitching ain't switching. Like there are a <laughs> lot of people who will complain at length about a product or service and you can learn a lot from those complaints, but they're still using them. They're still paying for them. They're still, they're still there, right? They haven't actually switched. And so those people I'd say are okay to talk to. But if you really, really want to get great insights, talk to people who recently bought something. And what you want to do in that conversation, that 20 to 30 minute conversation, is you want to get them to walk you through their buying journey. Because the interesting thing about how people buy is that 95% of the purchases that we make are actually driven by unconscious like emotional triggers. And what that means is that we're not actually all that cognizant of why we're doing what we're doing. But afterwards, we like to justify it with logic, right? It's like, oh, you know, I bought this because and they'll give you they'll give you a reason. But if you actually go through and you're like, okay, well, 
take me back, actually, take me back in time. Like when was the first time that you actually realized that you might need a solution like this? And then if you get them to walk you through the whole journey from that kind of like first thought or that trigger moment where they were like, I need to make a change and walk through to them actually having found the solution that they've paid for and are using. There is so much juicy information in that journey that from a marketer's perspective, it's like hot damn, like this is like gold. And from a product designer's perspective, it's like, okay, those were the trade-offs that mattered. Like even though this one was better, they still bought this one because it was closer or it was yellow or it was like, and so like, it's so interesting what you'll get in those insights. And again, most people cannot volunteer this information in a survey. If you just ask them why you bought, why they bought, they will give you a quick answer. But if you actually get them to recount that whole journey with you and you get them to walk you through that journey, they will unearth things that even they weren't that aware of. And so it's really interesting to watch and to do. Yeah, I think it's really hard to replicate kind of the power of an actual just offhanded comment or like a conversation because then the person just starts talking and then they'll they'll like apologize for rambling. And you're like, no, 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 actually the rambling is what I want to hear. Keep going. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like one of the things I teach in my workshops is I say silence is great <laughs> like because that awkward silence after they've just finished talking and you're not sure if they're going to say something else or not. If you let that hang in the air for a second, usually they'll keep going. And then they'll get into, well, and you know what the reason was, and they'll start getting into the deeper good stuff. And so it's okay to have a little bit of awkward silence. And you definitely want to let them do the talking and just be a sponge and keep asking questions and, you know, keep digging in. Like two of my favorite questions in my interviews are interesting. Can you tell me more about that? You'd be amazed. I find that like asking that question is like when you turn over a rock and there's this whole ecosystem of like ants and worms below it. Like there's so much good stuff below that question. And the other one will be like, oh, like that's interesting. Like, can you walk me through your thought process? And then they'll explain not just what they did, but like why they did it. And usually the what is like, you can make some assumptions around like the what be like, okay, that makes sense. Like I could see that. And then like you ask that question and the thought process totally like throws you through a loop and you're like, oh. Well, that's not at all the way we're talking about this thing, or that's not at all the way we designed this to be. Like, maybe we need to re reevaluate what we're doing because that's a really interesting insight. So, these conversations are and they're they're so cheap. Like, <laughs> we're doing them with cust with uh, Charboy's customers, and all we offer them is a fifteen dollar gift card. Like, mm -hmm. and they're happy to get that gift card and it probably means they're going to buy again. So great. Like, yeah, but, yeah. and when I do them with customer camp, like when I do them with the, the business support organizations that we work with or with the people who come to the workshops, those people never ask for anything in return. They're just happy to help. So really what this costs you is your time and it saves you so much time. Yeah. hundred percent. And then just to, just for like technical detail, are you recording these conversations? So you have them to reference back to? So I, this is, that's a great question. And I go on both sides of the fence. I encourage people to record them who are working on teams because for one, if you record it, there's this human instinct that if you're not recording it, that you need to take mad notes because there's no record of this and every, you need to get verbatim everything they're saying. And that can force you to not really be present in the conversation and potentially miss something. So even from the like relieving your brain of that anxiety, recording them can be a good idea. And if you are working with a team, 
then chances are that you're going to want to be able to go back and pull out that soundbite or pull out that like moment and share that with the team because you're going to be able to then use the customer's words to make arguments for why one way is the way to do it or why you're making a decision. And there's nothing more compelling when you're trying to present a new solution to a team than to be able to let the customer do the selling for you. So I would say absolutely, if you can record them, most customers have no problem with that. I do this research on behalf of clients occasionally. It's not something that I do a lot of, but we do a bit of consulting. And so we'll, of course, we'll record them because we're going to go through and like read through all the transcripts afterwards. It's really kind of like pool all of those insights and categorize them to present that back to the client. But if you are a person who's doing this for your own business, you're you know not going to necessarily be using this to share it with a lot of other people. It's really more for you figuring out what to do next. It's probably okay not to record them, right? Like I would say if recording them becomes a barrier to getting them done, don't mm. worry about it. Gotcha. Cool. So, so what is our, what do we do? now as <laughs> with customer camp like why does customer camp exist and how what have you found that we provide to our customers so that's a great question and again i mentioned bamoesta and this idea of jobs to be done and jobs to be done really has shaped a lot of the work that i've done with customer camp and it shaped how i think about customer camp and so what we do at customer camp simply put is we help people to better understand their customers so they can sell more stuff so they can market more effectively it's about having clarity so that you can make decisions and feel like they're coming from a real place. And the way that we do that currently is primarily through partner-sponsored training. That's what we've been doing for the last 18, well, not even 18 months. The first customer camp ever was in uh, December of 2018. So it'll be, I guess it is 18 months Coming now. Coming up then. on two years, yeah. Coming up. And so like that's what we've been doing for the most part. But Within that time frame, as I said, we would get approached to do these research projects on behalf of clients. These were typically larger organizations that didn't have the skills in-house or didn't want to do them in-house because they were afraid they might bias the results and they really wanted to bring in kind of the pros. And so I do a little bit of consulting research services for clients and I've done a little bit of training where I sell the, the, the content directly to the end user. So not through a sponsored partnership, but to the person who actually wants to learn the thing. So looking forward where we're going is we're still doing, you know, we've still got a full calendar of uh, partner-sponsored training coming up in the fall and winter. But where I really want to transition and where I'm excited about working, quite honestly, is seeing this applied to companies like Charboys, companies that are direct to consumer, companies that can control everything from the types of products that they sell to the distribution chain to like the whole customer experience end to end. That to me is such a natural fit for what we do because they can take these insights and they can apply them across their whole customer journey, which is what we teach people to do, right? We teach them how to understand their whole customer journey. And so my enthusiasm looking forward is really going to be about focusing in on companies that sell directly to customers customers, sell physical products directly to customers and helping them to take those, the insights that they're going to learn from having these really highly powerful customer conversations, from doing the right type of customer research and to be able to apply that to their whole customer's journey with them, their whole customer experience. So that's kind of what's coming on the pipe. I like to say that, you know, 2021, it's just all about, it's like that one audience, that one product and focusing on getting that one big impact for them. So that's kind of like what, where the focus will be going as things evolve. 
Awesome. I'm uh, so excited to be part of this. <laughs> it's so the cool timing is crazy, right? Because like I wanted to do this before the pandemic. Like I ro- loved working with these product-based businesses because they're just so much fun to work with and they can control so much of the customer experience. But then with with COVID, like this, one of the crazy things that's come out of it is that people just want things, they want everything delivered now. They want to buy from companies that have the same like mission and create like, unique types of products just for them, right? Mm. And so it's really an empowered time for those types of entrepreneurs and, and their teams. And I want to support them. For sure. It feels like everything's kind of become unbundled. Like it's still convenient mm-hmm. to get stuff by mail, but mm-hmm. it's become unbundled. It's no longer like I have to go to Walmart. I can just mm-hmm. now invi- buy individually. Like my favorite deodorant is exactly. comes from a different company than my favorite bar of soap. But exactly, they both have they both have the opportunity to create amazing customer experiences uh, in their very small niche if they if they want to start small. Yeah, absolutely, and like I'm having conversations kind of like locally within Atlantic Canada about like, well, may, if this is this is kind of like a an opportunity where I'd want to be part of it. I'm not going to lead it, but like I I think that there's got to be more help and support for those types of entrepreneurs because I come from the startup world, the tech startup world. There are incubator programs, there are accelerator programs, there are venture capital firms, all shaped, all like kind of like consuming, like helping these venture backed uh, tech companies. Yet you've got all of these highly lucrative, mm-hmm. like product based businesses that can sell directly to customers that can like you know. Get, they don't have to go through the typical like distribution chains, like, and they're pretty much ignored by mm-hmm. by that high growth community. Yet they're high growth companies, mm-hmm. and so I'm really excited about kind of like what I see being the next wave of high growth companies and being able to support them in any way. Wrapping things up here, Caitlin, what are some exciting things that we can tell tell the listeners about that we're working on coming up soon? Well, well, now that you ask. So (laughs) we are working on a new podcast, which I'm so thrilled to have you on because as a listener to your podcast, I know that the quality of this is going to go way up now that you're on the team. And we're doing that in collaboration with Saltwire, which is a company here in Atlantic Canada. They basically own all of the local newspapers and magazines. So they've got an amazing network and we are going to partner with them and co-produce this podcast. It is called customer show. And I'm going to get to talk with like global experts and things like conversion, copywriting and behavioral economics and anything nerdy about understanding how customers make decisions. And the whole concept of customer show is that we help you to understand what makes people tick, click and buy. So that's coming down the pipe. I just started doing the first handful of interviews for that. We are launching our new website, which is going to talk a little bit more about some of our new training programs and our evolved training programs that aren't our current site's kind of out of date. So if you, that'll give a lot more detail as to what we're doing in the coming months, and then the the focus on D 2 C, like that's that's still evolving. Like I'm still figuring out exactly how that's going to be shaped out. But people can keep an eye on that and get on our mailing list if they if they want to know more. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I'm going to be on my, I'm going to be on the mailing list because I <laughs> knowing about all those things is exactly what, what makes me tick and I'm excited to be part of it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through that, Caitlin. And I will see you on Monday <laughs> for when we start. Awesome. I'm so excited for Monday. Cheers. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, 
you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.